0: Let's dive right into this. Grab the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, and I'm going to draw your attention to the fill in the blank. I want to say hi to everyone watching on live stream. Hi to you. We know that you're out there, so we hope you're the blessed as well today. We are in part forty six of our Being Jesus series, and I'm titled today's message: Understanding Israel. And just by saying that, I lost most of you. Uh, a lot of you would go, uh, "I'm not a Jew." Okay, I get that. I understand that, that you're not Jewish. A lot of us are Gentiles. But I do, I do have a real quick question. How many of you are Jewish? Can anybody raise your hand? Anybody that's Jewish? I'm, I'm sure if you're Jewish, you can raise your hand. That's good. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. All right, so there's all three of us. Okay, good. That's great. Uh, that means the rest of us are Gentiles. And so that is the idea of, man, understanding Israel. Uh, why, why does this church talk about Israel so much? And that is something that I talk about a lot. Um, I'm always referring to the Jewish people. I'm always referring to the Old Testament. I'm always referring to the you know all these things about learning from them and understanding them. And they're our f- spiritual family. And I keep saying all this stuff. And so when I wrote this lesson, I thought, why do I talk about them so much? I thought there were three things that popped into my mind. The first one is that I believe the Bible indicates the Jewish people were designed as special revelation from God. In other words... God designed a people so that he could reflect what he's like and what he likes more clearly. So, if you want to know God, you got to go know the Jewish people. If you want to know more about what the Lord desires, you got to know the spiritual history of the Jewish people. So, is it important to know God? Yes. Is it important to know the Jewish people? Yes, it is, both in the past and now. And then I thought the second reason was simply that they're family. Uh, I've shared with you that the Bible is very clear that we were adopted into their family. They're the spiritual family that got in first. They're the first kids we got adopted in later. So as a Gentile, we are hooked into their train, and therefore their history is our history. right? Their spiritual lineage is our spiritual lineage. Um, And then the third reason was they were designed out as a nation that God would use as an example so that we wouldn't fall into the same problems. They went through it loudly so we would not have to go through it ourselves. Let me give you an example. Um, A couple years ago, uh, when my little one was eight, uh, I think we bought her an action Bible. I don't know if you've ever seen the action Bible, but it's pretty cool for kids. It is uh, designed like a comic book, and as a comic book nerd, I enjoyed that already, but they had it has all the panels and the drawings, and it's great artwork. And what's so fascinating about it is how they condense the stories into visuals and in short writing. So you would have to condense the whole book into this, and it's pretty thick, but it's the entire Bible. So I got a chance to read through it twice with her. Well, when we we're in the period of the Judges, On one hand, it was awesome because if you want to talk about visuals, let's talk about Samson, right? And all the crazy ripping off the gates of the city. I mean, that stuff's already intense. But what was super funny was that the book of Judges is cyclical, meaning it does the same thing over and over. Here's the pattern of the book of Judges. Israel was doing good, so they forgot about God. Then they got busted in discipline from God, and so everything went bad. They cried out to God and said, we're miserable, he raises up the deliverer and puts them right again. Then, when they're right again, they forget God, and then they uh, get in t- into trouble, and then God frees them, and then they forget God, and it keeps going around and around and around. My eight year old's like, Come on, seriously? How did you keep making the same mistake? And she was so frustrated because every story began and they forgot God. And she was like, how can you forget God? He just did this miracle. And watching her frustration of just going through this comic book Bible is a demonstration. They're in there so we don't keep doing the same things, right? We should learn from them. But the question has to come up is even though they have such a rich heritage, is God done working with the Jewish people? The answer to that is no. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. The Jews are still God's chosen people. The Jews are still God's chosen people. And we're going to talk about how that works out and what it means today. Let's dive right into some scripture. The first passage we have is a combo account of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then we're going to go through two short passages of John. And they all kind of tie together. We begin with a story of a blind man in Jericho. And it starts like this. As he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, that's Jesus, a great crowd followed him. And as they drew near to Jericho, behold, seriously, check this out. There were two blind men sitting by the roadside begging. One of them was Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. All right, so let's start out with the idea what's Jericho? Jericho when you go over there and I've had an opportunity to see it on their sign it says the world's oldest city is that true well what's fascinating is that they have the moniker of the oldest continuously occupied city in the world they can trace occupation in their city over 10,000 years that's pretty old that means it has a really, really rich heritage, but you may not know a lot about it. It's about 15 to 17 miles from Jerusalem. It's in the desert area. It's seven to 800 feet below sea level. Well, Jerusalem's up on the mountain, so there's a big discrepancy between the two. When you, when you drive through there, there's sycamore trees, and there's all these different things that you can look at and see. But you probably know it best for a couple stories in the Bible. First story, obviously, is what? the time the walls fell down. Y'all remember that story, yeah? So the first city that Israel underneath Joshua had to conquer in the promised land was an impregnable city by the name of Jericho. Walls in some places eight feet thick, in other places 16 feet thick. You're not gonna get through that. Well, God had them march around it, and on the seventh time, God ripped the walls down, if you remember that story. Well, that's pretty famous but why that story is so important for today is because there was a specific woman in that story do you remember her name Rahab now Rahab was a prostitute and as they sent in the spies into that city they ended up in her place to hide and she said something shocking she said although I am in this city that no one can take over I know who you are, and I know who God is. I know that God is with you, and if God is with you, there is nothing he cannot do. And as a matter of fact, we are all nervous because we are aware, and I'm very acutely aware, that God can get through our walls. I want to be on your team because you're on God's team, and anyone on God's team, I want to be with. In other words, this pagan prostitute woman had greater insight greater spiritual sight than almost the entire nation of Israel at the time they were all nervous about the campaign she wasn't nervous at all she was a foregone conclusion that God can do it and here we have a Jewish man in the same city that can't see anything I think that's a critical point to this story but we'll get into that a little bit more in a moment other famous stories that involve Jericho, the Good Samaritan story, the parable Jesus told he was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho when he got uh, when he got robbed, all right? <clears throat> Maybe you remember Zacchaeus he was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. you right? You know this song? Yes, I will not sing it um, but but he climbed up in a sycamore tree all right for the Lord he wanted to see. okay, we all know the little little rhyme, yeah well. Zacchaeus was a tax collector that was ripping off everybody. Jesus comes into town, transforms a whole guy's life, and he st- says, I want to give back to all the people that I've stolen from. So there was a dramatic conversion that happened in this city. And that's why the sycamore trees are out in the city, like almost in, in modern-day Jericho, almost like a like an advertisement kind of thing. You know, hey, he might have climbed in this one. You know, and it, it <laughs> probably wasn't, but that's the idea. So now we have... A city of Jericho that says two things about it that are a bit odd and contradicting. Let's go ahead and look through the passage again. What do we just see? It says, Luke says Jesus was approaching Jericho, while Mark says he was leaving Jericho. It's a Bible full of contradictions? It should be thrown out? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. All right. So how is that possible? How do you also approach the city and leave the city when the exact same story happens? Bet you didn't assume this one. There's two Jerichos. Herod the Great, just before Jesus' day, had built a new Jericho. He wanted to build a winter palace that was very lavish. He did not want to build it on the, build it on the old ruins, the old city that was only moderately inhabited. He wanted to build a fresh new one, so he moved it a mile down the road and just extended out Jericho. So you have old Jericho, you have new Jericho, and in between you have this story, they're leaving the old city, walking into the new city, but they're all Jericho. Those are the kind of things that you would never know unless you're doing a little bit of study in them, right? I mean, you just kind of go, that looks like a contradiction. It's not. The other question that comes up is, why are there so many people? It says that a great crowd is following. Is Jericho really that popular? Yes and no. It's Passover time. Passover time, big deal for the Jews. There's nothing cooler than having Passover in the holy city. So people come from the north down to the south to Jerusalem. People come from other lands inside And while they're coming through, there's people lined up on the streets, encouraging them, saying, man, I can't go this year, but yeah, you go, brother, right on, let's go. And you're encouraging them and clapping for them and saying, this is a wonderful season of the year. And since everyone's in a religious mood and a generous mood, all the beggars and everybody's lined up outside too, waiting for a little bit of coin to come their way. But then there's another piece that a commentator mentioned. He said, it is estimated that there was working for the temple in Israel at that time, over 20,000 priests and 20,000 Levites, that's 40,000 people, that's a workforce for the temple, but not everybody serves at the same time. They had 26 shifts that they would go on and off of. When you were off shift, where would you live? If you live super far away, it was a long travel. So wouldn't most of them be in cities surrounding it? yes they would and in passover when it was a seasonal time where they needed more helpers more were coming in why is that important well if jericho's loaded with priests and levites so their job was all about god every day they handle god's stuff every day they deal with worshipers of god and now all of a sudden walking through your hometown comes a guy that people keep saying is the son of god you think you're not going to pay attention you think you're not going to look at him with scrutiny and go, seriously, this is the son of God? I mean, that's my job. That's what I do. I know everything about God, so I'll judge for myself. Here comes a celebrity walking down the street right in the middle of their town. All right. The other question comes up is how many blind men were there? Okay. Uh, So, for example, Matthew says there was two. Mark and Luke only mentioned one. So were there one or two? Well, one is in two, right? So if there's two, there's obviously one as well. And the point being is that even in the crazy naked demon guy story, there was actually two demon-possessed guys, but only one gets talked about. Why? It is believed by most scholars that when they wrote this, Bartimaeus was a known guy in the church. In other words, they could have said, yeah, there's two guys. And everyone's like, yeah, who cares about the other guy? I think his name was like Rick or something like that. I don't even know that guy. But Bartimaeus, man, that's a guy that sits with me in worship on Sunday you know, or, or whatever it is. They knew Bartimaeus. That's the only reason why he would be named because there's a lot of people in the Bible that miracles happen. You don't know their names. Why is this guy named? Probably because he was known. And just so you don't think it's rocket science about why he has a weird name, Bar means son of. So if his name is Bartimaeus, he's the son of Timaeus. If it's Bar-Jonah, he's the son of Jonah. Very simple, kind of a lame way to name your kids, but whatever. (laughs) We go to the next passage, and hearing a crowd going by, because he can't see them, he inquired what this meant. Man, why does it sound like there's just this massive mob coming? They told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. The dude from the north, he's come down. Remember that guy? And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted to get attention. They cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What does that mean? Hey, guy from the north, Jesus, that we've heard about. We believe you're the Messiah. You're the son of David. You're the promised one that was going to lead us. That means that you have the healing power of God. That means that you are going to lead us and guide us. Have mercy. Stop what you're doing. Minister to our needs. We want to see. They cried that out to get his attention. Well, that's going to take a couple people off. Look at the next line. And many in the crowd who are in the front rebuke them, telling them to be silent. Hey, hey, blind guy, shut up. What are you doing? Why are you all yelling like that? I can't hear the guy. And you go, man, that's obviously that's awful callous, right? I mean, it's really, would you say that? You would just go, you know, oh, quiet down. Oh, what? You can't see. Oh, uh, Crimean River. I can't get And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's with the attitude? Where did that come from? And you go, man, what a bunch of jerks. Really? We do it every day. When someone cuts you off, what do you do? Automatically label them. You know what they're like, right? Oh, they're a terrible driver. They're this, they're that. Really? You have no idea why they cut you off. You have no idea if their wife is now in the hospital and they're flying in. And they're not worried about hindering your day a minute. They're worried about getting there to be with their wife. You have no idea if something horrible, they just got fired from their job, they're lost about how they're going to provide for their family. All you know is they interrupted you. How dare they slow down your progress to get to Walmart? <laughs> How dare they interrupt your way to Carl's Jr. drive through? Really? Who do you think you are? You're that important that you can't have someone else interrupt you. Oh, they're cutting you in li- you know, front of you in line, right? Whatever it is, we automatically judge them and we tell them, you need to back off and get away from me. I got something going on do you now? And it's more important than what they got going on, yeah? Because you're more important than they are. Huh, that's weird. Same thing is happening here. We can't hear the rabbi. We can't, we don't know what's going on. If you yell, maybe he's going to pay attention to you and not to me, and I don't want to get into that competition, so you need to shut it down. The guys are blind. This is their only shot. Huh. It says, And many in the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more. That word is different than the first one. This means scream out with intense emotion. And they're like, did you just tell me to be quiet? Oh, check this out. Ah! You, know, they're like, they're like, you know, how dare you try to shut me down? And they start screaming louder, son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on us. And they're just going full bore. Like, we got to get this guy's attention, right? Have you noticed that there's a lot of people in the Bible that refused to take no for an answer and pressed in to get next to Jesus for their healing touch, and they were all healed? It's almost like God loves to encourage pressing in it's almost like, you know, remember the guys who dug through the roof and he was like, nicely done. You know, remember that one? They wrecked that dude's house. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that people did. There was a woman that made everyone unclean just to touch the hem of his robe, and he was like, awesome. There, there's all this driving to be next to Jesus, refusing to be shut out by peer pressure or other people judging you or other people getting in your way. You just said, you know what? I need to be next to Jesus. I need the touch of Jesus. So I don't care if I'm in your day I'm going in and they wouldn't stop and those people were blessed for that why does Jesus require us to strain to get near him a lot of it is just for us to grow up a lot of us have to get outside of ourselves and be about him or then we only think that he's a genie that gives us what we need to go on about our day hmm And Jesus stopped, look at the next passage, and Jesus stopped, well it worked, and commanded them to be brought to him, saying, call them. And they called the blind men, saying to Bartimaeus, take heart, get up, he's calling you. That phrase, cheer up, take heart. It's an interesting phrase, because it's used seven times in the Bible, this is the only time Jesus doesn't say it. This is Jesus' line. It's one that he commonly used, uh, in other, and what I thought was so cool about it is Jesus would say, cheer up, I'm here. Man, if I'm here, your whole life can change right here, right now, because anytime you're around me, who knows? Because at any moment, whatever I want to do, I can do it right now. That's incredible. And so now they copied his line. They now know it. It's probably one of his crew that said, hey, come here, cheer up. Your lottery came in, Right? man, you get to hang out with Jesus. Let's go see him right now. So they bring him up there and it says, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Now commentators go different directions on this. One says he threw off his cloak. The other one says he scooped up his cloak. So I don't know how it's supposed to be read, but both have very interesting implications. Let's say, for example, he scooped up his cloak. What would that mean? It means that he has his cloak laid out in front of him as a blind beggar, meaning I'm not going to move around. i got to stay here. This is my spot. And you're supposed to throw the money onto the cloak. So, you know, you go to San Francisco and somebody's doing something and they have like a guitar case open or they have a box or they have something you can put your money into. That's how you collect. If he rapidly jumped up and grabbed it, what would that mean? You just lost all your money. It just scattered everywhere because you only got a split second to respond to Jesus. It means that what he had in his cloak was nothing in comparison to what he can get in Jesus. And he didn't care anymore about his business. I'm out. If he was wearing it, what does that suggest? I have to get to Jesus and I don't want anything hindering me. Just throw off the stuff. I'm going for it. Is there anything in the Bible that suggests that? Yeah. Y'all remember the passage that says, therefore, we set aside anything that would hinder us, the sin that so easily entangles us as we run the race of life. Meaning whatever is holding you back from running towards Jesus has got to go. Either way, it's powerful. And when they came near, Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? Now, this is one of those questions that are so odd. Well, I don't know, dude. I'm blind. That's kind of what I was yelling about. So I think it's about the blind thing. Why would Jesus ask an obvious question like that? Well, here's why I think he asked it. I think he asked it because whatever response that man was about to make goes public. And it commits him to the process. In other words... If he got nervous and kind of got embarrassed by everybody now paying attention to him, and he's like, what do you want me to do for you? And he's like, "Uh, I just want to say hi. And Jesus is like, hi. Uh, Then he would have caved. But if he says something like, I want you to heal me, well, now it's out in the open. Now you're going to embarrass yourself because now you're telling everybody, I believe that guy can heal me. I'm telling everybody right now out in public, he has the power to heal me, and I will literally embarrass myself and get in front of everybody and say, let's do it. Well, that's a lot of faith you got to exhibit. So Jesus is drawing him into the process, right, of saying, are you with me? Do you really think I can do this? He's drawing him in so the man's faith is fired up, going, yeah, I'm in this. I fought all the way to get here. I'm lit up. I'm excited. Let's go. Says it out loud. Now everyone can hold him accountable for it. But it brings up another side note. If you get prayed for in our prayer corner, or if you get prayed for by a pastor and elder around here, a lot of times before we pray for you, we will ask the same question: "Hey, what do you want me to pray for?" And you go, well, that's kind of a dumb question. We can't read your mind, and and what you really want prayer for sometimes is not obvious. So, for example, I was at worship, healing, and prayer night, and there was a young man from our church. And he was hanging out towards the end, and I had already prayed for a huge line of people, and there was a lot of very important needs and everything. Well, he comes up, and he has a leg brace, and he has crutches. Well, that's pretty obvious, right? And so I asked him, hey, brother, what can I pray for you about? And he said, I really want direction and wisdom for God in my life. But it had nothing to do with his leg brace. It had nothing to do with the crutches, Because in his mind, he had already been prayed for about that. He really wanted just what God wanted for his life complete different i would have gone the opposite direction and prayed about something he wasn't even interested in right then so when you pray for someone please listen deeply and ask them what would you like me to pray for about because it might be different than you assume and let's pray about that because our heart is engaged in that okay and it says it says uh they said to him lord rabboni let our eyes be opened we want to see Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and said one simple Greek word, see. That's the power of Jesus. He walks up and he says, see. Touches their eyes. Go your way. Your faith has saved you. That literally says saved you. Not made you well. We know it has to do with physical healing, but I think there's even something more than that. This guy's going to walk away a changed man. Notice that Jesus touched him in pity. What does that mean? Does it mean where he's like, oh, poor blind guy? Or does it mean I just made your pain my pain? Here's why I think it's important. A lot of people argue with me about healing, whether or not it's legit for today and stuff like that. And I notice that almost everyone that argues with me about it doesn't need healing. The people that need healing are not arguing with me. It's usually the whole... Dude, let's go pray right now. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's go. You know, and what I'm saying is our hearts should be so moved to realize not everybody feels like you feel. So even though you and I may have the leisure to argue about healing, the people that need healing just want to pray. They they don't want to get, we're not getting into the debate this is a real issue for them. And so a lot of us, um, we will not be moved by somebody else's scenario, Because we're thinking they're like us. They're not like us. Everybody's different. Everybody's unique. And our hearts should be like, what's hurting you? That now hurts me. Just because I'm feeling good doesn't mean we have extra time. If you're hurting or if you're scared or if you're lost, I need to get into that mindset so I can pray with you as you would. I can't just be a removed person out here of going, yeah, I'm sure you have a need. I'm sure it's important to you. No, enter into my pain with me. Know what it's like. Feel where I'm at. That way you're praying with intensity because you're supposed to be my brother and sister. We shouldn't be aloof is what I'm trying to say. Yeah? Um, And then it says this. Immediately they recovered their sight, which suggests they weren't born blind. It says they regained their sight. Not that that matters. Immediately they regained their sight and followed him on the way glorifying God. Why are they following him? I don't know. Maybe you're just fired up that you got healed by that guy and you don't want to leave. Or maybe they're going to Jerusalem like he is to go to the temple to say thank you to God for healing them. Either way, they're on a new road. Notice how it looked to everyone else. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. When he said that your faith has made you well, what did he mean? Did he mean that their faith healed them? Or did their faith get them next to the one that can heal them? You know what I'm talking about? A lot of times we're thinking, well, I don't know if I have enough faith. Do you know who to go to? Well, if you know who to go to, then you have enough faith to get there because he's actually the one that heals you. So, so if you know where to go and 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 how to present yourself before the one that can heal you, yeah, we're, that's awesome. That's what we needed. It's not like you know, well, I, I'll get he- I'll get healed once I have enough faith. Well, hold on, no, no, no. You're supposed to have faith in the one not just faith in faith. You're supposed to have faith in the person of Jesus, and he's the one that does the healing. That's awesome. Praise the Lord. That's great. So why are we talking about this right now when we're talking about Israel? I thought this message was about Israel. How in the world did we get off on some blind guy in Jericho? Because I think they're tied together. Why are the miracles recorded that are recorded? Remember, the Bible's very clear that not everything's recorded. The majority of what Jesus did is not recorded. So why are these stories recorded? The Bible says that Jesus healed every type of disease. So how come there's not all and then Jesus went into their city and cured all their IBS. Why is there not irritable bowel syndrome mentioned in, you know what I mean? Why, why is it not all, and there was a massive crew of peg legs, and he was healing the peg leg. There, there's certain things, it's always blind, it's always what, deaf, It's always lepers. There's only a few categories and they keep getting commented on. There's multiple people that are blind that get healed. Why does he keep mentioning blindness? You go, well, that's because the Messiah was supposed to heal the blind. Yeah, 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 yeah. But why? I would suggest to you this is a statement about the nation of Israel at the time. They can't see God anymore. But when Jesus comes into town, now they can. And their whole world opens up. I would suggest to you that there's a much deeper statement about healing the blind in Israel than just about physical malady. So let's keep that in mind as we're talking about that. Because John refers to this very issue. John's passage that we'll have up on the screen is John 12:37 through 43 It says this. Speaking of Jesus, John says, though he had done so many signs, meaning miracles that were supposed to point to God, relationship with God, though he had done so many signs before them, they still didn't believe in him. Why? So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, 1 and 2 might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, the answer no is assumed. No one. Isaiah said, man, I'm out here. I feel like I'm beating my head against a brick wall. All I'm doing is sharing your truth. All I'm doing is sharing the love. All I'm doing is sharing that your salvation is available and nobody cares. Man, I reveal it to everybody and nobody responds. My ministry's miserable, he said. And then the next phrase, therefore, they could not believe. Wait, 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 I thought you said you d- they didn't want to believe. Now you just said they could not believe. That's a big shift. Ah, uh, let's talk about that. But take a look at Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes. God has blinded the eyes of the nation of Israel and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. You're like, I thought that was the point. Why are you hardening their heart? Why are you blinding their eyes? Don't you want them to respond to you? Well, I did, but I don't anymore. What? Why? Uh, there's a big story behind that, but let me finish that last line. It says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Whose glory? Who's John talking about? Jesus. Wait, wait, wait. Isaiah's Old Testament. What do you mean Isaiah saw Jesus? You're like, Jesus is in the Old Testament? Do you remember the story in Isaiah 6? There's a song to it. And I see the Lord seated on his throne, exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. You have seraphim all around the throne. Isaiah sees him. And John goes, yeah, that was Jesus. They're like, wait, what? No, that's God. He's like, exactly. Jesus is God this is a deity of Christ statement right here okay now let's go back to this why in the world would God shut down Israel oh there's a little bit more to this passage it says this nevertheless nevertheless despite the hard hearts despite the rebellion despite the shutting down despite all the resistance God still got through to a whole bunch of people Many, even of the Jewish authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, the cultural leaders, they didn't go public. They didn't confess it. So they wouldn't have to be put out of the synagogue, kicked out of church. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What does that mean? It means even though God got through all their rebellion and all their hard hearts, they still looked around and went, wow, this is going to be really unpopular. I appreciate your salvation, Lord. That's great. I'm not paying that kind of bill. No thanks. You can keep your salvation. Really? Really? That kind of stuff happens? Yeah. It happens all the time. What it means to be put out of the synagogue, whether it's temporary or permanent excommunication, is a big deal. In Jewish, ancient Jewish life, and even today, to be put out of the synagogue means you're cut off from friends, family, business associates, your entire society. But then again, what would a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The hearts of mankind are really messed up. So why did God deal with Israel the way he did? Because how they reacted to what he did. Let me give you a synopsis of the history of Israel in a few short moments. It goes like this. God created Adam and Eve that he might have a personal relationship with them. The Bible says he walked with them in the garden in the cool of the day. It means that they were unhindered access to God. But Adam and Eve said, you know what, we appreciate the relationship. However, we would like to be in control and they ate of the fruit, and it caused everything to fall into chaos. It ended up getting so bad that no one was connected to God that God could only find one guy that was connected to him. That was Noah. So God hit the rinse cycle, wiped out the whole thing. Let's start over again, folks. Here we go. All right, Noah, let's re-rack and they all start out, and little giraffes come out of the ark, and everybody starts over again. But sure enough, the hearts of mankind wander away from God. God finally says, you know what, enough of this business. I'm going to create a nation that is my people. Grabs a no-name by the name of Abraham, says, I will go through you to bless the entire world. You're going to be my point man. And that's very odd to talk to a man about lineage that doesn't have any kids. Well, sure enough, there's a series of miracles. He ends up having kids. It goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. That's where we get the name. His boys are where we get the nation of the tribes of Israel. Then it went to Joseph. Joseph, who got sold into slavery, had a miserable life at the beginning. God used to move to Egypt. Why? Why? Because he wanted to take care of the Jewish people. They were about to have a famine and everything was going to go terrible. But Joseph was safely in Egypt, brings the whole family in, and they are in abundance. That's pretty awesome. Not only that, but if you want to build a nation, don't let them get scattered. You want to keep them all together so they reproduce like rabbits. You know what I'm talking about? Let's keep them all hanging. It's the building and the whole growth process of Bridgeway. You know what I'm saying? If I can just keep you all close enough, all right, we'll have a massive church. All right, here we go. Well, eventually, you had all these rabbits everywhere. And the Egyptians are like, uh, everybody see how many rabbits we got out there? (laughs) I think they're going to storm the castle. So they start getting freaked out and paranoid. They start trying to hold down the Hebrews. They put them into slavery. They're miserable. They cry out to God. God says, good, it's time. Let's get out of here. Let's go to the promised land. Takes them out of the promised land. Says, I'll walk with you. Let's go to the promised land. Come on, kids. They go up to the edge of the promised land. Send in spies. And the spies are like, there's no way in the world we're going in there. That is insane. You know how big those people are? I mean, we as Jews aren't all that tall in the first place. Those guys are like massive. I'm not going in there. You're not going in there. And everybody says, you know what, God, we appreciate the promised land thing. No, thank you. Wait, wait, what'd you say? I said, no, thank you. You should have just left us in bondage. Really? Nice. All right, you know what? All of you that just made that decision, your generation, You don't even deserve to get in. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to wander around the desert till y'all die. That's what we're going to do. Oh, look, manna every day. 40 years walking around the same territory. That's pretty miserable. Why? Because everyone's waiting for the last dude to die. He's like, "Uh," and they're like, you know. And he's like, no, it's just something in my throat. They're like, dang it. Come on, man, if you just, any time, right? Yeah. They cut the brake line in his car. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff, Then when he, finally, when he finally dies, God goes, all right, we re racked again. Okay, folks, this is about relationship. Let's go to the promised land. Switch in leadership. Moses, you're out. Joshua, you're in. Let's go do this. They do the campaign of the promised land, do pretty good, but don't get it all because they, of course, can't do everything God says. They can do like 80%. So then there's some pockets that are not ready yet, and then they forget to pass it on to the next generation. What happens if we do not invest in our children spiritually it goes away so a new generation rises up that doesn't care about god and suddenly we're in the period of the judges my daughter already taught you that story this morning it didn't go awesome finally after leaving god a million times god raises up a prophet by the name of samuel the nation says we want a king we don't want god to lead us anymore he said seriously they go yeah 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 we want to be like everybody else Fine, here's a king named Saul. He doesn't follow the Lord. How's that work out? Didn't work out so well. I'm going to find a guy after my own heart. His name is David. King David steps into the throne. The Jews are following the Lord because David's following the Lord. But then God says to David, hey, remember that whole I'm going to bless the whole world through Abraham? It's going to go directly through your line. So now we have the Abraham promise. Now we have the David promise. And it's getting narrowed down. But Solomon, his son, fades as he gets older. By the time he's dead, the nation splits in two, north and south. The north, more wicked than the south, only follows God for a little bit. God gets fed up. They last about 250 years, and he says, forget it. We're hitting rinse cycle again. Assyrians come in, take them completely out of their land to discipline them, only leave the poor. The south lasts about 500 years, twice as long. God says, We're hitting the rinse cycle on you too. Boom, the Babylonians come in, wipe them out. Everybody's out of the land but the poor. While they're hanging out, and the north was the poor by themselves, they get repopulated. That's where we get the Samaritans from, right? The ones that the Jews don't like later. Well, then 70 years later, God says, All right, guys, have we all learned our lesson? I've spanked you sufficiently. Can we start over again? Okay, everybody come back. Here we go. Nehemiah rebuilds the wall. Ezra helps him rebuild. We have all the prophets come in and, hey, we have a new temple. Here we go again. And no matter what the prophets say, they walk away from God. God goes, I'm out. 400 years of silence shuts them down. No more prophecy, no more nothing. We're going quiet on everybody. Over four generations go by and God says, I'm not saying a word. And then a guy shows up named John the Baptist and he said, Thus saith the Lord. And they said, What'd you say? I said, Thus saith the Lord. God told God's talking? Well, what's he saying? He says the Messiah is coming and he's here. Here? Like here, here? Or like gonna be here? Oh no, he's right over there. His name's Jesus. Awesome! They all run over to Jesus. Man, you're gonna be our new Messiah, right? We're gonna totally take over Rome. Jesus is like, uh, no, we're not. They're like, What? Come on, I've been waiting for you forever. Yeah, but I don't do it that way. Oh, you're a lame Messiah. (laughs) I don't want lame Messiah. I want like power Messiah. Oh, you know what? Forget him. We're doing our own thing. And the leaders of Israel at the time said, you know what? We don't think you're it. We don't want you. And they reject him as a nation. Now, let's be very clear on something. Not all Jews hate Jesus. This is ridiculous. This whole business. Jesus is a Jew. So obviously, not all all Jews hate Jesus. The whole early church was all Jews. Come on. No, 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 no. There's some that believed he was the Messiah and some that did not believe he was the Messiah. But understand, God breathed life and the Messiah is a Jewish Messiah. And it was the Jews that were the church. And that's how everything got started jesus dies resurrects ascends fulfills the promise of israel to be their god and to be in their hearts at pentecost all of a sudden the holy spirit goes indwelling in the church he goes worldwide picks up the samaritans picks up the gentiles and grasps them into the body in other words we're adopted into the family of the jews and while he's gathering kids You can now be a son and daughter of God. You can now be a son and daughter of God. Scoops them up, puts us all as the family of true Israel, meaning true Israel believes in their Messiah. We're now grafted into their family, chained to their train. We're moving that way. National Israel's moving the other way, but God's not done with them. So what ends up happening in the church age is God said, National Israel, I'm going to make you guys super jealous. Watch this. He grabs a whole bunch of Gentiles and he starts moving in their camp. They're like, We know more about God than you do. And we start being all cocky and arrogant. And the Jews are like, Shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. Because they're like, We know God. You don't know God. And they're like, No, we have miracles too. And blah, blah, blah. And they're arguing back and forth. And God starts moving so powerfully through the Gentiles that now the church is exploding. It's going all over the world. The Jews are super irritated on purpose. Because God's going, How does that feel? You just lost your leadership role. What are you doing? Kids, you're not listening to me. Now I'm going to agitate you. Because you know what? He will agitate them till a time when he removes the veil off their eyes when the full number of Gentiles comes in. And there will be a massive revival of the national Israel. God is not done. Amen? is now he's going to grab true Israel and they're going to start blending with national Israel as he leads. And one day Jesus will set up an earthly kingdom in Israel, fulfilling all of his promises to Israel and says, see, kids, I told you so. Yeah. That's the plan of the Jews. Does that matter? Yes. That is our heritage. That is our future. And so John says it like this. John 12, 44. Let's close with this. And Jesus called out loudly in public. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever trusts in me, lives in light of me, believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. In other words, my Jewish brothers and sisters, you all respect the Father. You don't like me, but we're a package deal. If you love the Father, you love me. If you love me, you love the Father. That's how it has to go. Whoever sees me, Sees him who sent me. I'm the exact representation of Dad. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. In other words, there's no point now that Jesus has come for us to wander through the world, whether you're Jew or Gentile, going, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what life is all about. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know what my identity is. There's no more need for that. Jesus came into the world and turned on the light and said, Hey, let me tell you, you were built for my glory. You were built to be in personal relationship with me. And when you do that, I move through you and I'm transforming the world. So you do have an identity. You have my image in you. You are beautiful and glorious because I made you that way. I love you. I want to use you. And we can go do the greatest adventure. Let's go. That's what Jesus came to talk about. Now nobody should be in darkness. And he finishes with this. Jesus said, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't, I don't judge him right now. For I didn't come to judge the world on my first go-round, I came here to save the world. The one who rejects me and doesn't receive my words, oh, he has a judge. The word that I've spoken, that will judge him on the last day. If I give you the truth, it will either set you free or condemn you, depending on what you do with it. For I've not spoken on my own authority, my friends, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I'm saying as the Father has told me. So to the Jews, he says, I'm here because of dad. So I understand that you want him and not me. We don't have that option. I'm with him. What's the point of the message? The Jews missed it. Are we going to miss it? That's the point, right? Do we are we not going to learn from their mistakes? Are you going to miss the Messiah? Here's how you'd miss it. Get it, pastor, whatever. I know, be moral, be a good person. No, you missed it. That's not Christianity. Christianity is personal relationship, not sin management. You know what I'm talking about? So if you're into sin management, and you're just a better person, you failed. That's not Christianity. I get it. I get it. All right, right? I mean, I, okay, so I'm married to a believer. My parents were believers. Man, I'm American, right? Obviously, I'm a Christian. <laughs> you missed it. No, that's not Christianity. No, this whole I'm connected to the right people. No, that's all garbage. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? If you don't, you're going to hell by yourself. That's great. Everyone else is going up. You're not going there. It's a personal one-on-one thing. I get it, all right. You keep talking about all this stuff. All right, I go to church. I read the Bible. I'm doing the prayer thing. I'm giving my money. Get off my case i'm doing the ritual you missed it again that's not christianity you only do those things because of relationship if you don't have the relationship that stuff is stupid you know what i'm talking about all right that was deep okay here we go <laughs> everyone's like i think you just ruined his whole sermon right there okay <laughs> don't miss it I don't know what's going on in your world. I don't know what God's trying to do with you, but don't miss it. We've got to learn that you have to pay attention to God at all times. You don't get to go, I like this, I don't like this, and you're picking and choosing, and you're just saying, I don't want God for this reason, I want God. Do you want God or not? And if you do, you got to be with him in what he desires of you. It means a wholehearted, yeah, let's do this, Lord. I don't know how to do it. I'm kind of messed up, but I want to walk with you. It's got to be personal or we missed it. The hope that we have is that God is strong enough to still draw us to himself, even as resistant as we are. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for a walk through your word this morning. Thank you for a walk through history. That, God, that you are working with your people, they are loved, they are chosen, they are special. God, I pray for a blessing upon the Jewish people right now. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, send revival into their land. I pray that all over the world that the Jews would have the veil lifted off their eyes and they would be everything they were designed to be. That they would take, once again, that beautiful leadership position to show us what you're like and how it works to have a Jewish Messiah And to be fully true Israel. And so I just thank you, Lord, for your patience with them. I thank you for the way you're working with them. I thank you for not giving up on them. But still having dreams and plans of great salvation for the Jewish people. Lord, for those that are not Jews here, like me, Father, I thank you for adopting us. I thank you for letting us in the family. We are um, amazed at what you let us do. We are thankful for you. And may you be glorified in us. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time.